three, two, one. Hello and welcome back to Kentucky Caliber. We've been on summer break for the past couple of weeks. So I know I had a couple of folks ask me why there wasn't any shows um, for the past uh, two or three weeks. And that has been because, not because of the floods, we'll get to that. Um, actually, I just wanted to take a brief summer uh, break between uh, the first half of the year and the second half of the year. So we've done that. Um, we took our family on a, a planned vacation up to D.C. and we're back from that. And of course, here uh, where I live in eastern Kentucky, I live in Floyd County, there has been a lot of damage from the flooding that took place a couple of weeks ago. And that has impacted a number of different counties across the eastern Kentucky region. And many of those, I think eight so far, have been issued official uh, disaster declarations from the federal government, which means they're eligible to receive disaster assistance, including FEMA, which is the Federal Emergency Management Agency. That, that declaration makes funding available to folks who have lost property, such as their home or their vehicle or personal belongings, due to the damage caused by floodwaters, which have been on a scale we haven't seen um, in a while in eastern Kentucky. Of course, overall, I wanted to talk about the floods for, for a little bit. Um, there's a history of flooding in eastern Kentucky. You can go back to the 57 flood, which created uh, quite a bit of damage in the eastern Kentucky region. The 77 flood, there was another in 84, and of course now in 2022, this year's, um, which was initially forecast by the um, meteorological services as a potential flash flood threat, and it, it indeed turned out to be just that with a, a very high volume of water falling in a very short space of time in areas where the um, the narrow valleys that are very common here in eastern Kentucky and the uh, the narrow creek beds and, and such simply could not handle uh, that volume of water falling so quickly and so they the uh, the creeks became very swollen and they overtook roadways and in some cases unfortunately residential areas that are next to creek beds or nearby uh, were inundated with floodwaters and so a lot of places have had some very severe impacts, and they're, they're just too numerous to list. Um, I've been to Whitesburg, which is in Letcher County, Kentucky. That's the eastern part of um, right near the border there with, uh, with Virginia. And I had a chance to work as a volunteer with Team Rubicon, which is a veteran-led disaster relief organization. And what they do, what we do is help clean up debris and do uh, some repair work to properties that have been damaged by natural disasters, in this case a flood. And so all the work that Team Rubicon volunteers do is work that the people affected by the floods will not have to pay a contractor to do. So when it comes to home repair, we're providing you know free work to help them recover from the flooding. I know Team there's a lot of different, and I'm just focusing on that one because that's one I have direct experience with. There have been a lot of different organizations here from not just all over Kentucky, but all over the United States, uh, providing various forms of uh, 
aid and relief such as donations or food supplies or other volunteers or cleanup or repair and, and initially even rescue um, efforts. There were, there were several rescues conducted by the Air National Guard and by local folks who were operating on uh, small boats because there were roads that were overcome and they couldn't be accessed by vehicles. You know, initially when the floods first hit, um, even first responders couldn't get to some of the people who needed assistance. And so th those rescues, many of those um, had to be done by air and by boat. Uh, and in many cases, just by air, because the debris were so strong and the waters were moving so fast, even boats couldn't get to some of those places. There was a while there that um, some of those locations that had been hardest hit were simply inaccessible until the water receded. And what it left behind was just a, a trail of devastation across um, eastern Kentucky. I know the, the places we worked uh, near Whitesburg with Team Rubicon, some of the homes that had been flooded had had up to four feet of water in the home for for more than a couple of days at a time so what that means is pretty much everything when you go inside the home uh, everything from four feet down has to be replaced now fortunately some of these many of these that i saw and i, I know this isn't the case everywhere but in some cases homes that were brick um, the actual structure of the home managed to survive even though the interior was completely gutted and so it has to be rebuilt uh, from the inside and part of what we were doing was was ripping out rotting sheetrock and pulling up you know rotted floors so that the subfloor and the floor could be replaced and new sheetrock could be installed and then the home could be rebuilt you know one piece at a time from there and unfortunately um, you know folks who, who were in that situation not only lost you know the inside of their home but most of the possessions that were in there as well and I know some of those things are, are simply uh, irreplaceable even if you get um, funding from insurance, which some people don't have, or from federal assistance, um, you may be able to buy new new furniture or new uh, new things like that. But there's some things that were just pictures and memorabilia, you know, that are irreplaceable. So, so the devastation that the flood has wreaked on Eastern Kentucky is is substantial and will be lasting. The repair will be measured in in months, maybe even years, for some places. There are some schools that were inundated, uh, and they were completely underwater. So the school dates have changed. Uh, in a lot of places uh, initially, and that includes where my kids go to school in Floyd County, um, they were supposed to start last week and the date was pushed back to August 24th. And so it's affected nearly every aspect of life in the region. And so it's good to see volunteer groups like Team Rubicon and others come in and provide assistance. We, we brought in about 135 what we call gray shirts because we wear a, a t-shirt that's that's a gray color with our team logo, team Rubicon logo on it as we do the uh, the volunteer repair work. So we're called gray shirts. There were about 135 gray shirts deployed to this area to do cleanup and repair operations. And I know there's, there's so many other um, different uh, really good volunteer groups as well that have come out. Local groups, church groups have helped. I know the, um, the um, Kentucky basketball game, the blue-white game, which is normally held in Rupp Arena, is going to be held in eastern Kentucky, probably Pikeville, which was not affected by the flood, but which has the uh, the Expo Center, which is large enough to have a pretty sizable crowd. And uh, I, I'm pretty confident that the proceeds from that will go towards uh, flood relief and uh, disaster relief. So that's what's happened in terms of the flooding and, and the devastation uh, here in the, uh, the eastern Kentucky region. The response to it, in addition to just the, uh, the federal uh, disaster agencies going into, um, into action and relief groups coming in, of course, there's, there's inevitably larger discussions about why flooding is so severe and why it's been so, so devastating. 
and, uh, and, and it's, it's fine to have those discussions. Um, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons why Eastern Kentucky is vulnerable to these types of flooding. First, the, the terrain itself, uh, the narrow valleys and the rugged terrain and the narrow creek beds, um, when that much water falls so quickly, they swell up and they overflow places that were nearby. So a lot of places in, in Eastern Kentucky are, are designated as flood zones. And, you know, folks outside the region, region often ask, well, why don't people just build their home somewhere else? Well, they can't. Uh, there's not a lot of other accessible uh, property that's not in a flood zone. Uh, and if it is, they, they can't afford it. So that's simply not an option. It's, you might as well ask uh, someone in the path of a flood why they just didn't put their pick their town up and move it out of the way of the water. Well, they, obviously, if they could do that, um, there wouldn't be a problem. That, that's impossible. So that's not an option for folks who live here. Um, of course, in some locations, it's likely that previous strip mining efforts um, may have contributed to and probably did contribute to the severity of the flooding because in places where there are um, vegetation and trees have been uprooted and not replaced, the, uh, the soil can't hold as much water. And so when that absorptive capacity is reduced, the, uh, the rate at which it floods, uh, it's, it gets saturated with water more easily, so it floods more quickly and, and it causes more runoff. So yes, that, that's also a factor in, in some locations and, and perhaps many locations. I'm sure uh, folks at the University of Kentucky and, and people who study climate science and, and environmental science will do some uh, professional credential studies, and I, I'm fairly confident that their findings will eventually provide evidence to prove that, in fact, um, previous mining efforts were a contributor. They're not the only contributor, but they were a contributor in addition to the, you know, the rugged terrain that already existed in eastern Kentucky. A lot of people want to talk about the climate change issue. You know, that's fine if you want to talk about it. Um, we're seeing, uh, not just in this region, but across the country and across the globe, an intensification of more extreme um, weather events, whether it's rainfall or heat, or even in the winter, extreme cold, and that is in line with what climate change models predict will continue to happen. Um, my only comment on that is, you know, right now we're, we're trying to help people rebuild their homes and, and so there are folks out there who don't know where they're going to sleep tonight or where they're going to get their next meal and, and how they're going to recover from this. So it, it, until that work is done, that that's the priority, um, is, is helping the folks that have been affected. Um, there, there's a time and place to have the larger, you know, scientific discussions about climate change and, and right now is simply not it if you live here. Uh, the priority is to help people and once that's accomplished then yes of course we can have these larger discussions um, about what if anything we can do to mitigate the the effects of climate change. You know the, the Senate and Congress just passed a sweeping uh, climate change bill that includes a lot of different provisions. That's a long-term strategic tool. That's not going to provide any immediate help to folks who are in danger zones but you have to have a long-term uh, plan as well as a short-term plan. So that's designed to be a long-term tool with which to address the challenges of climate change. Whether it's successful or not, in doing that, only time will tell. There are things that can be done locally, and I'm sure folks that work in uh, the public works at the county level will be looking at what changes, if any, they can make to local infrastructure to try to make it more flood-resistant. You know, we can't stop the waters from falling, but maybe there's some changes we can make to drainage or drain pipes and roadways that could make them a little bit more resistant to events like this so that the damage would be less uh, than it was in, in the, than it was this time in the future. Because we know that floods are going to happen again. Folks that live in eastern Kentucky, we know that. We know they're going to happen again. There's going to be more floods. I have no doubt 
um, maybe even soon, hopefully not, but, but it's almost a certainty that there was, there's going to be, I know just last night there was, uh, in Pike County, which is right next to where I live in Floyd, there was another round of flash flooding, uh, almost three inches of rain fell on already saturated ground, and so this will be a challenge uh, for the eastern Kentucky region as we go forward, and uh, we'll see, uh, hopefully the counties can, can do a good job of mitigating that. One proposal I have, and I've already started to put this out to, to state legislators, you know, there's a lot of different things, uh, a lot of different aspects to this tragedy to, to look at and to try to, to um, make improvements as we go forward to, to limit damage for future events. One of them, not nearly all of them, but one of them, um, if you look at what happened in Weisberg with Apple Shop, which is a place that is a, an education center, but also a repository of a lot of historical data and artifacts, and those were some of those were lost in this flood, and they can't be replaced. And so, what I'm hoping I can convince our legislators, it's it's very likely that the governor Bashir will call a special session to address the the uh, the flooding in eastern Kentucky and specifically to earmark funds for that recovery effort which will take a long time one of the things I hope and I want to get included in that effort is a digital preservation act or funding for digital preservation technology has come a long way and things like 3D scanning which can allow you to create very um, detailed replicas of historical objects and historical artifacts that will give you a digital backup so that if the original object is is lost to an event like a flood you still have at least a, a very detailed uh, lifelike digital copy of it available to access electronically a lot of places in the world are embracing that kind of technology it's being used in ukraine to try to preserve um, historical artifacts that are being uh, destroyed by the russian army it's been used it uh, after the notre dame fire in uh, paris to try to preserve the original interior of the Notre Dame Cathedral. And so if there's any future uh, events like a fire, we'll at least have a very detailed 3D image of the interior that future generations can look at. So I would like to see that type of technology used here in Eastern Kentucky. And I am a direct stakeholder in that particular effort, by the way, because as of this Monday, August 15th, I will be the new executive director for the Big Sandy Heritage Museum, which is located in Pikeville. And it has, I think, about 3,000 pieces in that collection. And that is a, a, an organization, it's a nonprofit, dedicated to preserving and promoting uh, knowledge of, of the heritage of the Big Sandy region, which is Pike County and surrounding counties. Uh, so I'm very excited to be a part of that effort. And um, because in a, in a larger sense, you know, in, in society today, we're, we're kind of losing touch a little bit with uh, knowledge of the past and of history and so I, I view that job as an opportunity to make a you know a small contribution to that effort to try to preserve um, our heritage and to try to promote awareness and knowledge amongst especially young people but but not just them um, everyone amongst um, the history of our region and and what it means because it, it's really difficult for anyone to build a better future without that foundation without foundational knowledge of the past and of things that happened previously. And then that's really important. And there's a lot of different organizations out here that are devoted to that effort. Um, and we're just, the Big Sandy Heritage Museum is just one of them. But um, I'm excited to be part of that, and I'm looking forward to getting going uh, on that work and trying to grow and uh, expand that organization and contribute to the, uh, the preservation of heritage 
in uh, the Appalachian region. That's that's something that really resonates with people. And you know, I, I grew up here. I was born and raised here, so I, I'm one of them. And I, I'm one of those folks that thinks it's really important that we do that, which is why I'm interested in the job. And I hope that we're able to secure you know funding in the state legislature that will allow us to accomplish uh, digital preservation. I mean, the, the technology is there. It's not theoretical. It's not experimental. It works. It's there. Lots of other places are using it. It's just um, you have to have the funding to acquire it, and then you have to hire, in some cases, folks that are trained technicians to use it to the maximum effectiveness. So it's a funding issue. It's a resource issue, but it's worth it because it will allow us to preserve um, a part of that heritage, even in the face of uh, continuing, you know, natural natural disasters, which we will almost certainly face more of in the future. For the folks that are, you know, out there, it, it's heartbreaking when you actually, when you see it up close. I mean, it's one thing to watch it on television, but I can tell you from, from being in Whitesburg earlier this week, you know, it, it's heartbreaking when you see it up close, just, just how devastated uh, those communities really are and how much has been lost in terms of property and, and people's, you know, life possessions. I, the only thing I've ever seen that's worse uh, than the flood damage I saw this week in Whitesburg uh, from a natural disaster is the uh, the big tornado that hit Oklahoma City. And I was a I was a young lieutenant stationed out there um, when that hit, and so I, I remember seeing you know houses for just as far as you could see that were just gone. Um, so that that was the only thing I've ever personally witnessed that was worse uh, than the flooding. And in some ways, you know, the flooding is over a much bigger area than the tornado hit so it's, it's apples and oranges but i'm just just from a personal perspective um i haven't seen anything worse than this except for that big uh, tornado out there so thank you to all the, the volunteers out there that are working to help people that have been affected thank you to all the uh, the different people who have donated or either money or their time to try to help people recover and that's a story by the way that hasn't been um, much highlighted in uh, in a lot of places but I would call it, the effect I would call it is an army of neighbors. And I think that's what we've seen at the community level. You know, if people just coming together to help their neighbors, to help their communities, to help folks initially just get, get to safety uh, when the floodwaters came, because, you know, they came at night. And the, the flooding, most of it happened overnight. So you've got an invisible threat out there that you can hear and not see. If you listen to the accounts of most of the people who were directly affected and who had to flee their homes, what, what alerted them to the danger was the sound uh, of the, either the roaring water or the debris hitting the side of their homes. You know, it was the middle of the night, so they couldn't see anything. And it was still, not only was it dark, you know, it was pouring the rain. So its visibility outside is almost zero. But they could hear the threat. And so that's what alerted them to the danger. Uh, so you can just imagine what it's like to be in a, you know, a life-threatening situation. And, and how do you get to safety if you can't see where safety, where a safe place is? That, that's a pretty dangerous uh, situation to be in. So also a big thank you to the National Guard and the first responders who were there to rescue hundreds of people. And it was in the hundreds, by the way. Uh, and every one of those rescues were people who were in imminent danger of losing not just their property, but their lives. So while the, the death toll was tragic, without those first responders, it would almost certainly have been much higher, an order of magnitude higher. So we all owe them a big thanks for the work that they've done uh, to get people out of harm's way here in eastern Kentucky. And the rebuilding will go on for, for a very long time here. So the region itself will be changed as it was by past floods. Uh, and I'll give you an example. You know, the city of Pikeville here, uh, with the cut-through project, what triggered that entire enterprise 
was that almost every year the city of Pieville would experience flooding when severe rains came because of the way the river flowed and the terrain of the city was situated next to it. And so the, the planners of the city, including Mayor Hamley, came up with the idea that, that if we can't move the city, then we'll have to move the river. And, and so, which is, and you had to do that, you had to move a mountain <laughs> uh, that was there, and, and that was a monumental project, which ended up being, you know, second um, in the amount of uh, earth moved only to the Panama Canal in, the, in this hemisphere. So it's, a, it's an enormous project that changed the city's future for the better. Um, it made Pikeville a better place. Pikeville is, is an economic hub now for the region, and, and one of the reasons why is because that cut-through project was completed. It took almost a decade and, and millions of dollars to complete that project, but it changed the city, and the basis for all of that was the fact that it was facing such a recurring flooding threat. So I'm, I don't know exactly what changes will come of this flood, but I'm confident that there will be some, and that I, I'm confident that some of those will ultimately uh, despite the current tragedy, they will ultimately lead to changes uh, in those communities that are that are for the better. So, out of that tragedy, hopefully, some good can come of it in the long term uh, for the communities that have been affected by the uh, by the historic flooding. And I would use that word; um, it, it is historic flooding. The the watermark that was set by the Kentucky River uh, near Whitesburg was far surpassed. Uh, this year as compared as compared to 57 usually 1957 is like the big flood that the biggest of the big floods that everyone talks about but the the river crested far above this year in 22 far above the levels that were seen in 57 so it's not it's not inaccurate to call these floods that we've been through um, historic and I, I hope that the, as many people as can gets assistance as soon as possible and are able to to resume their lives as soon as they can. And I just it'll have to it'll just take uh, an enormous amount of resources and and strategic patience. But it was great to see so many volunteers out there, and, and like I said earlier, the not just from outside the area, but from the area itself, and uh, the army of neighbors helping each other uh, should be the headline of the response to. Uh, to the flood, you know, people can argue about the uh, the factors that caused it or contributed to the flood itself, but the story for the response should be how communities, you know, pull together and and help each other because they displayed courage, they displayed resiliency, and they displayed selflessness uh, in the way that people pull together and help each other. And and those are not things that are typically associated with the Appalachian region. When you think about our unfortunate long history of being uh, associated with you know negative stereotypes, especially at the national level, and that's a, a very old problem, um, negative stereotypes of the people who live in the Appalachian region, I think this response to the flooding proves that we already knew those stereotypes were, were false, but this, this response just proves even more um, how inaccurate and incorrect those um, those stereotypes are, and I hope that that folks that look at the region from outside, you know, whether it's it doesn't matter where it is, anywhere else in the United States, I hope that they they see and they hear uh, on display uh, the the way that the people of Appalachia responded to this tragedy uh, speaks a lot to the uh, the type of people who who live here. Of course, we we have our shared problems like any region, and uh, no one's uh, arguing against that. But the response to the disaster shows you the kind of the caliber of folks um, that we have living here, and the fact that they were so quick to help each other um, is a is a 
it's good on them. It's a, it's a good sign of character and compassion and people who care about their neighbors and care about their communities. Even though they may argue with them at other times, uh, when disaster strikes, they were there. Uh, and that's when it counted. So we'll, we'll continue to watch that as we go forward. Back to the Big Sandy Heritage Museum job that I'm going to be taking, I'm probably going to start doing a, a similar uh, history-focused, a regionally history-focused uh, podcast for that organization. And I'm not sure exactly yet what we're going to call it or what the frequency will be. But the idea is to have a, at least a weekly show, uh, maybe more, that focuses on uh, communicating and, and uh, exploring a portion of uh, the Big Sandy's history because there's a lot there. It's very rich and there's a lot to uh, to mine there. So we're going to get to do that pretty soon. Um, I've also had the chance now, I've completed um, two podcasts for Veterans for Responsible Leadership as their national podcast host. I had a chance to sit down with um, both the president and vice president of that organization. Uh, the president's uh, an, an individual named uh, Dan Barkoff, who is a, uh, he's now an emergency room physician. He used to be a Navy SEAL, and he, he founded the organization. And VFRL, which is what Veterans for Responsible Leadership stands for, is exactly what it says. Uh, it's a nonpartisan uh, organization that's dedicated toward holding elected officials accountable, promoting civic engagement, preserving the integrity of our elections. Uh, there's a list of things you can you can check out the website or uh, Twitter. I guess is um, our most active uh, platform online. So VFRL has a Twitter handle. But anyway, it's just a, an honor for me to be part of that, a small part of that organization, to be able to contribute to their mission. Uh, by being the podcast host, and and it's a lot of fun. It's 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 really good chance to have, you know, the kind of deeper discussions about policy issues that you don't get, uh, especially during an election. You know, all you get is the the political sound bites and the attack ads, and and much of it is just nonsense. And I think most voters know that, and they're they're tired of hearing it. Um, but for for folks that are in organizations like VFRL, we can actually have a, a, an intelligent, thoughtful policy discussion amongst diverse uh, diverse viewpoints you know like i said we're nonpartisan, so it's not it's not liberal it's not conservative um we have folks from both of those uh political persuasions who are part of our organization and so it's it's um it's very broad it's very diverse and you get some good good quality discussions and we hope to continue that uh in the future because that is um, a cornerstone of democracy having an informed citizenry requires that we be able to communicate with each other on, on things that we disagree with, uh, especially when it comes to you know policy issues that affect the, the whole country. And it's without, um, without the ability to communicate and have civil, intelligent discussions, it's almost impossible to make good decisions and to enact good laws and good policies that will help the country deal with those problems. So we, we think that in a, in a small way we're contributing to the overall civic health of the country, and that is vital uh, in order for us to be able to meet the challenges and needs that uh, that we face today as a nation, so it's it's an honor to do that. I'm looking forward to continuing to do that in the near future. And I, although I had a restful uh, the summer break there, we are back now and we'll be doing our normal weekly show. Uh, in addition to the the VFRL and the future um, work for the uh, Big Sandy Heritage Museum, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a busy time, but it's going to be an exciting and, and a fun and a rewarding time. Uh, so I'm looking forward to all of those things. And, and to all the folks, again, who are out there in the flood areas, you know, our heart goes out to you. We've 
the, the volunteers are doing everything we can to help, and I just I wish everyone the best, and I wish all those communities out there a uh, a speedy recovery, and hopefully, finally, a break uh, from from some of this darn rain that keeps falling. Oh, even last night we had more, but hopefully, we're about to see a little bit of a a pattern change in the weather. And boy, is it is it welcome! Uh, so I, I hope we get some some cooler, drier air for a little while, and uh, that will that will actually help folks. That will help the recovery efforts too, because it'll give. Um, folks doing the uh, re- disaster recovery a um, little bit better conditions to work in. So I'm looking forward to seeing that change happen as well. Anyway, that, that's all I've got for this week. Um, I thank everybody for listening, and I hope everyone has a great day. Take care. Mm-hmm.